Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani-Albov. This month, we are super excited to be joined by one of our colleagues from Global Development Studies. He is a fellow doctoral student and is working on his dissertation as we speak and also has some really exciting articles in review. So we're super excited to have this conversation. I won't take up too much of the time. So I turn the floor to you to tell our listeners who you are. Hi, Sophie and Chris. Good to be here with you. So yeah, I'm Antti Tarvainen and I come from the Global Development Studies and finalizing my dissertation. I, I think that's the word I should use. I don't know how long it's going to take, but you know, that's where I am. And what I'm doing is I'm researching innovation uh, economy. You can think of Silicon Valley or uh, high tech or startups or venture capital, whatever images come to your mind, maybe the face of Steve Jobs. So I'm researching the colonial violence that is connected to the expansions of innovation economy. Um, so I look at this new, supposedly new form of, of capital and its expansions and see how it's connected to the histories and practices, imaginaries of colonialism. And it's the empirical research. So I've collected the data, field research in Israel, Palestine, Israel being the startup nation or the Silicon Wadi. Wadi means valley in Arabic. Um, and it's very intimately connected to Silicon Valley, the world center of innovation. And during the past decades, the uh, innovation economy has been spreading from California Bay to Israel <clears throat> and more and more into Palestinian spaces. So it is within this setting that I get to examine how innovation and colonialism intersect and whether the futures of innovations are actually something new and novel or whether they draw from history of colonialism and the hierarchies that we think when we think about colonial expansions. So that's the project in a nutshell. That's really fascinating. And I mean, you know, I, I've, I've really loved looking at the work that you sent over for us to, uh, to check out ahead of time. And of course, you know, the conversations we've had in the past, because of course, it really does overlap so much with the work that I'm doing. But I find this so fascinating. And of course, such uh, an apt geography to focus on. But I guess to go to the kind of the beginning, we're talking about California, we're talking about Silicon Valley, how does colonialism fit into that original setting? I mean, does it go all the way to the basis of Silicon Valley? Because that's not something that's usually talked about. That's a brilliant question. I think that's the uh, first thing that I started to look at. I, it, it wasn't Palestine and Israel at first. It was more in Silicon Valley. And I noticed that within the business literature, you have a lot of uh, histories of Silicon Valley in the mainstream business literature. And the way that it's presented, the history of Silicon Valley, is that it starts from the 40s, 50s, when the U.S. state started to invest, the military industrial complex started to invest in California Bay and to create this uh, innovation hub. So the history normally starts from the 40s and 50s, but there's another history. There's another history that, that goes further back in, in the history of California. Of course, it, it's located in a settler colonial setting. Uh, there's a history of U.S. expansion to the West, all the, um, the sort of messianic, utopian, imaginary that is part of the colonial tradition. When the colonial California was imagined, it was imagined as a paradise, as a paradise of new technology, as a paradise of frontier heroism, as a, as a liminal space between the past and the open future. So there's a sort of colonial utopian history that goes back to the history of California. And um, if you look at the sort of the origin points of Silicon Valley, you think of um, Stanford University or Moffat Airspace Hub, which is nowadays owned by Google, they're actually based on uh, formerly burnt indigenous villages. And there are still more than 80 tribes, indigenous nations, fighting for their right to the land in California and in Silicon Valley. So it's very much alive, this uh, colonial history of California. And then when you think about the, you know, the hero figures of our contemporary, uh, the startup heroes, you think of uh, Elon Musk, you think of Jeff Bezos. Elon Musk just went to space and with this giant phallus. And when he came back, he was wearing a cowboy hat. And the sort of cowboy aesthetics, you hear all the time entrepreneurs being spoken of as, as, as cowboys or uh, 
evangelists or uh, missionaries. So if all these sort of uh, expansionist hero figures that are part of the mythology of Silicon Valley, and they go back to the colonial history. So it's filled with these symbols and metaphors that go back to the history of California colonization and the white American frontierism. And there's a, you know, physical expansion. There's a physical history with this land that has been uh, dispossessed and turned into this uh, hub of the future. And I think this is like um, quite characteristic to the capitalist visions of progress and uh, future, the capitalist futurism that they draw from these colonial imaginaries. Another really common metaphor used in, 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 in tech discourse, in the Silicon Valley discourse, is the, uh, you know, you have frontiers, you have new worlds, you are, the startup heroes are portrayed as carrying the legacy of Columbus. Uh, the venture capitalists who invest in these startups are portrayed as the Queen Isabel, who, uh, who funded Columbus' journey. So all these strange histories come alive in a new way. They are sort of like ghosts that we often do not notice. They're invisible. But once you start looking, once you start looking to the sort of uh, the material practices and the culture of Silicon Valley, you start to notice what's bubbling under the beast <laughs> underneath. And that sort of drew, drew my attention to this space, California Bay, at first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, California, I think, I mean, obviously, there's so many places in the US, all of the US, basically, that was, you know, under this um, colonial wave as people moved west. But California, especially, is very, very much steeped in that whole history. And I mean, I remember growing up, actually, I grew up, I don't know if you know this, I grew up very close to Silicon Valley, uh, down a little bit further um, in California's first capital. And I do remember, you know, getting these lessons, you know, in school about all these different histories that lived in these same spaces. But it's really interesting to hear you kind of pull it back like this. And it's also interesting to hear that these ghosts do exist in this kind of discourse about what the entrepreneur and the innovation is in Silicon Valley. But I definitely agree with you that California is very much uh, painted in kind of the utopian light, like, oh, the utopia of California, the the breadbasket, the innovation. I mean, I'm from California. I'm a little biased. It is pretty nice in a lot of ways. But also, you're right, there's such a, a violent history underneath all of that. Yeah, and I do not mean to demonize California. Uh, definitely not. But I think it's, uh, yeah, if, if, if we look at the history of utopia and we connect to the history of California, we can see that the uh, the California, the name itself comes from the 16th century uh, Spanish novel written in Sevilla. And of course, the Spaniards were the first to sort of discover uh, and this, this, this uh, place. They thought it was an island, and then they named it after this book. And this book portrays California as this uh, island filled with gold. It's, it's made of gold. It's like El Dorado, uh, another version of it. And it's, it's filled with black, beautiful women being naked. So it's, there's a sexual fantasy, racial sexual fantasy going on, and they have magic web weapons. So you, you look at this history of California, it's very origins. It's, uh, it, it's, it's deeply steeped in utopian, racialized uh, colonial myth. And we can now see the sort of heavenly promises that are spurring from that space. And... Um, it was interesting you said that you, you could feel this sort of different histories coexisting when you were growing up in, in California, but sort of the political and material question that we need to now ask that, can people still feel them? Are those histories still visible? Are those communities still there? And how tech relates to this? So how tech, not just as a story, um, but as a pra practical materiality that is expanding, is making some communities communities disappear. It's expelling people. So there's a bunch of research looking at how 
the emergence of tech sector when it takes over the city as it has take, taken over San Francisco and Oakland more and more, it's creating white spaces. So you have this sort of uh, realization of the American dream of uh, white cities of the future now returning to the urban centers of tech. And uh, I think it's very interesting what is happening. I think we shouldn't call it gentrification. We should be calling it settler colonialism in a new form. I think that's really fascinating. I mean, especially because, you know, when, when looking at it this way and also looking at the various resistance movements that have popped up in different cities, like, you know, when Amazon was going to go to New York or when Google was trying to get their whole, like, really creepy city thing going in, uh, in Toronto. <laughs> I, I really hadn't ever thought of it quite through that lens. I mean, like, gentrification has become such a, a huge thing. And I also think of how tech companies, like the really big ones have, like, I remember like Apple was a, a big example, was starting to buy up land like crazy. And as well, like how Zillow and some of the housing-based ones, but not even just them, have started to buy up entire communities whenever they see a house on the market so that they can take over rentals and uh, have space for their people. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, I think this is the, we often look at tech as it would, would exist only on this digital immaterial layer. But there's an urban layer to it. And the, the tech companies, if you look at sort of the biggest investments in recent years to the urban cities, cities in America, they're often made by tech companies. So they're buying up property. And of course, they're, when the, um, their workers, the highly skilled technicians from all over the world come to these cities, they raise up the housing prices, uh, the uh, value, and there's a whole speculative layer that starts to explode. So yeah, I think it's important to remember that it's physical and they're actually buying up land and property all the time in the middle of the cities. And that's a question for our democracy as well, because if, if, if democracy is born in the police, <laughs> in the city, if that's supposed to space where we get together and we, as Saskia Sassen says, that there's the cityness that we sort of uh, encounter different kinds of people and we you know, uh, uh, we have to face the other in the city. Is this process of tech starting to take over the police also somehow sort of disintegrating our democracy and our ability to, you know, meet the other? Uh, these kinds of questions. There was a, in San Francisco, talking about resistance movements. There was a fantastic resistance movement because the techies wanted to live in the city, in a cool place. And of course, they, the cool place often is a place that has Latino or, you know, uh, uh, African-American history to it in San Francisco. So, you know, there's this sort of project of, 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 of building the cool empire on the uh, lands of the non-whites. So anyways, they still had to go and work in Silicon Valley in the suburb in the sort of big campuses of Google and so forth. So they had these private buses, black windows, you couldn't see in basically, that would shuttle from the neighborhoods to the, to the Googleplex, to the Google complex and use public uh, bus stops for it. And people started calling these buses the conquistador buses. So to make invisible the colonial element and, and, and halting the buses, making, making them stop. And that was actually effective protest. They stopped using the public, you know, uh, trans uh, bus stops. So there's a lot of uh, resistant movement within these cities where tech comes. And some of them are very successful, as you told, uh, in New York or in Berlin, uh, they've been managed to stop and actually negotiate with these uh, empires. Yeah, I think it's amazing how, I mean, it's not even just the space of the city that is affected by these tech companies, for example, um, talking about the rising um, real estate rates as, you know, places, as these tech companies come in and then bring the real estate higher, 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 and really effectively lock out anybody who's from that place who doesn't already own real estate. But I mean, the uh, ramifications that it has, like the, it's like dropping a, a pebble in a pond and it just, the ripples, they go out and out and out because I know 
for example, I used to live in Sacramento, which is the capital of California, but not traditionally a um, tech center, if you will. Uh, I think for a very long time, we had the lovely nickname of Sac Tomato or uh, Cowtown, Davis also. Um, but in the last maybe 10 years, possibly a bit before that, but in the recovery from the financial crisis, even Sacramento is starting to become like a little Bay Area. And a few years ago, this is just an aside, but a few years ago, I was there. Um, I was visiting and I wanted to see my old apartment. Like, I don't know why. I just did, you know, one of those things. And I used to pay for this apartment in 2010, 2011. It was a two bed, two bath townhouse, kind of on the outskirts of Midtown. And I paid... I think it was $910 a month. You know, it wasn't cheap, but that's not crazy unreasonable. And when I went back and visited in 2016, we happened to be able to actually see the exact apartment because it happened to be up for rent. The going rate on it, $2,100. I mean, that's insane. That's That was only a six-year difference. And that's playing out over and over and over, even in places that are further away because i mean sacramento that's a good hour and a half drive two hours from silicon valley but it's because people are priced out of the bay area and so they start to move inland but then as they come it's like gentrification run wild it's very like startling how these companies come in and they just change everything around them and I really appreciate that uh, story that you told about those buses and the resistance and, you know, that ghost again, the conquistador, the ghost of the colonial past, like just continuing to haunt. Exactly. I think, yeah, first of all, like it's interesting you mentioned 2008, because um, now, now we are on another crisis, the, the global pan pandemic. And it seems that the, uh, the tech giants are not the ones who will suffer from this crisis it's the uh, in 2008 there was a massive flow of subsidies from the u.s central government to to these tech companies and they used it to pump up their value to buy their stocks back and so meanwhile you have the housing crisis and these companies are sort of gaining capital and being able to reinvest into the urban setting so it's uh, and now with the pandemic we have never seen before kind of a growth of venture capital and the you know hot spots of innovation are just growing in Silicon Valley in, in Israel. They are thriving. Meanwhile, the rest of society is, is doing something else. But I wanted to touch upon the, uh, because you said something important then with your story about Sacramento that took us away from the sort of centers of, of innovation. And we could even continue that there's not there's not only the digital layer and the urban layer, but there's also the rural layer of how innovation economy shapes globally the rural environment. It, it, it makes nature, it produces nature. And this goes back to the extractivism sort of uh, focus of, your, of the, um, this podcast that there's, of course, there's, when we, when we think only about the digital, only about the technological, only about the sort of the uh, immaterial, things that are in front of us in front of our eyes here on the screen we forget that this screen is made of something there's actual raw metals behind it there's a whole global geography of of uh, uh, raw material raw metal rare metal extraction happening um, and it's um, it's on a pace that it's 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 outstanding and this is another sort of layer that we should look into that and how it who are the people who have has to labor in the raw uh, material sides uh, of of uh, of uh, new digital economy? Where are they? How how do those geographies um, resonate with earlier colonial geographies? So we can see perhaps a colonial return in that as well. And the tragedy is that we are often invisible when we are sitting in the center of the city and drinking the latte and working with our laptop. We forget where this material comes from. And that's another sort of a huge uh, area of research, of course, go going on. 
absolutely and i mean it's it's one of those things that's it's rather terrifying too in so many ways like the exacerbation of different extractivisms around the world by this uh tech expansion i mean and when you talk about like the you know colonial geographies it's it's quite interesting too because you know when you look at some of the most vital resources and like vital minerals like say like lithium i mean you know lithium's blowing up like crazy you know you got basically like like Bolivia and Afghanistan, two of the biggest places in the world. And I mean, historically, you know, you know colonialism and attempts at colonialism, massive. Um, but as well, you know, like rare earth elements and things like that. It's, it's you know, it, of course, that's a giant category on its own. But, you know, even it's kind of funny, like um, looking at China, because China, like, you know, rare earth elements are, are everywhere. They're not necessarily even that rare, but so many of them are just so destructive to actually extract that most places don't want to do it in their own backyard. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that for so long, China was like the, the dominant producer of rare earth elements, like that are used for touch screens and everything. But even that has started to shift as China's gotten more economic power and starting to push those resource extractive industries down the road. So it's, I mean, such a, a fascinating connection and something, of course, you know, Sophia and I get into a lot with that connection of the tangible and the intangible. And of course, you know, with, with our kind of argument playing off of Alexander Dunlap's sort of ideas on the world eater slash total extractivism, the tech companies being the new extractive industries trying to extract our data and as well value from any other thing they can get it, you know, all connected, exacerbating and driving the whole world towards a, a terrible cliff. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think there's this, uh, blindness that is like plays systemic function here the invisibility plays a systemic function here that because it's covered with this imagery of the new and exciting you think of electric cars for example uh that's supposed to replace our you know um the amount of lithium to be brought out from the ground just to you know replace our fossil fuel uh, based engines with these batteries it's beyond belief but we are blind to these kind of things because it's uh, an innovation as a word i think it plays central role here because it means novels in latin it means the new so we tend to forget that there's this sort of uh, all these aspects that we've been now talking about are part of it that are not so new that are actually uh reproducing the old recycling it rather and there's violence in it, in that recycling. And um, we are unable, unable to grasp it, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that too, aside from like the uh, extractivism, for example, of the data, which is very real and terrifying, um, I appreciate what Chris brought up with like the actual, both of you brought up with the actual like things that need to come out of the earth to support these digital spaces because we need the actual, you know, and of course, goodness help me, I'm fully involved. I mean, definitely not the worst, but I'm sitting here right now talking to you on my computer and I have my smartphone next to me and I've got a microphone and there's, you know, I buy a new computer every once in a while because I want to stay with it. So it's like we're complicit in it, but it is very real and it's happening. And then aside from just what's physically in front of us that we can touch, which I think that it is easier to make that connection with the extractivism that accompanies technological innovation because, you know, we can physically hold our metal laptops and know what goes into these touchscreens and everything. But aside from that, what's also invisibilized is the actual material infrastructure that needs to support the use of all of these networks. And I think that that's one thing that Christopher and I have been working quite hard to bring that kind of to the fore in the conversation about extractivism, because I appreciate what you said, Auntie, about making nature, because these infrastructures they're as damaging and as violent and as real as a hydroelectric dam, for example. 
And I mean, even maybe the electricity that's supporting, that's charging my electric car is coming from coal or a hydroelectric dam. And I mean, as we explored with Alexander Dunlop, even things that in our mind are, were sold a vision of them, like the wind farms. What a nice word. Oh, it's a wind farm. It's a wind park. Oh, that must mean it's pretty. It's a wind park. Alexander Dunlap did such a good job of really unpacking the greenwashing of renewables. You know, is it really renewable energy or are we just looking at fossil fuel plus? So it's not just like the physical elements that we're holding in our hands to connect to this kind of digital innovation space, but it's also all the infrastructure that's behind it, which I think that a lot of people can't even conceive of what actually has to happen on the other side of their computer screen to store the data, to make sure the websites are there, the energy that's required to make sure that we can interact with the apps that allow them to then extract our data. Like it's just, it's, it's such a tangled web. Yeah, tangled web is a good phrase. And I think like we can also appreciate that these uh, technologies are fantastic also. They have fantastic capabilities and they can bring us together and they can be used, used for other kinds of politics. So I think that we shouldn't, while we are being critical, we should remind who, who, whoever is listening that the... Uh, problem necessarily is not the gadget itself it's the social world surrounding it and 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 and, and sort of social world it reproduces and creates that's the problem so there are fantastic other kinds of politics that could be done with these things uh, that that are now colonized uh, and monopolized and hidden from us Oh, definitely. It's one of those things of not necessarily, you know, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but, you know, really examining that it's the modalities of how these are produced. It's the modalities of how they're used. It's not like a bad thing to be able to bring people together, but, you know, having a, a tracking device that like any like app on your phone can uh, track wherever you are is a scary thing. Having the obsession with having a, a brand new phone every year with a slight tweak or something just different enough to make it so that you have to buy all kinds of new peripherals for it like every year like we don't need that and of course you know the you know that's why you know things like the right to repair approaches and things like that are so huge and of course you know can get into things of you know getting towards degrowth or or black box sort of economics of like why do we need things to go faster now like my phone can do a ton of stuff, can take amazing photos better than a digital camera could five years ago. But I mean, all this is so fascinating. But I mean, to, to get back to like the main area of your research, which is also incredibly fascinating, and I think exemplifies this sort of colonial extractive nature of these industries, looking at, you know, Palestine, Israel. So why? Like, well, I guess the, the first, like, to start on the basic, like, why did you choose there of all places? I mean, there's, you know, there are tons of places popping up all over the world. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think um, it's one of those, like, world centers. They, they, especially, like, in the early 2000s, there were two centers globally for innovation economy. There was Silicon Valley and there was Israel-Palestine. And I thought, you know, what's going on? These are both in settler colonial states. Is there something happening here? And then I had a prior experience in, in, in Israel-Palestine, so I started digging a bit. And um, it's a fascinating story. And, it, and it, I, I think what's going on in Israel-Palestine is sort of like a laboratory or like an extreme condition of, of the global. It's sort of, it's not a unique, ex, you know, uh, isolated uh, case. Of, uh, of innovation economy, but it's more the way I want to use it is to highlight some aspects that are more global. So I think going to Israel-Palestine, looking at innovation economy over there, looking at how it connects back to Silicon Valley, all the global networks, we can better understand the violence of innovation and also the possibilities of its reimagination. So there are like a lot of local movements and, and, and individuals trying to reshape these structures and trying to rethink what innovation is. So it's not all veiled in darkness, this story. There are alternatives and there are movements, even though they might be quite 
invisible. But um, anyways, I, I, I thought that it's an example that still has, hasn't really been researched that much, especially from sort of political point of view. And it's so central, like all our gadgets now that we are using, whether it's Apple or Microsoft or Google, Facebook, Amazon, all of it has Israeli technology in it. And then it relates back to Israel-Palestine conflict. So um, I thought that understanding the futures being made in Israel-Palestine can, can tell us something about innovation economy and, and its global future, but also uh, to highlight what is going to happen to Israel-Palestine conflict. What, what kind of political futures are being now created on the ground as this very powerful form of bringing economy, people, technology together starts to shape Palestinian spaces more and more. So that was sort of the origins of it. I have to admit that I don't think I was even aware that that Israel-Palestine spaces were this kind of node of innovation. In all honesty, I haven't been trying to find out too much necessarily about that and, you know, how it is. There's so much in the world that it's really easy to miss, like, really big, profound things. But, um, yeah, I don't think I knew that at all. Yeah, it's uh, Israel has branded itself as a startup nation. Um, it has most venture capital per capita straight after Silicon Valley. It has most startups per capita uh, in the world. So most risk investments, most startups, and it has more than 350 global multinational corporations that have their strategic research and design centers in Israel-Palestine. So it's very much the hub, the global hub of uh, innovation economy. And if you think about the history of, of Israel, um, the state was founded in 48, and it was very much founded on agriculture, on the um, local demand uh, consumption, on agricultural products. And the whole Zionist enterprise of taking over the land and expelling Palestinians um, operated through these agricultural collectives that used only, they called Hebrew labor. So uh, they, uh, there was a ethnic division of labor over there. And now since the 90s, that Israel has turned itself from uh, agricultural, industrial economy into global high-tech economy. It's interesting to see how these hierarchies uh, shift or become reproduced. And I thought that was an interesting case in that as well, just thinking about the history of Zionism and, and Israel uh, economy. I mean, that is really fascinating. And I mean, I, I knew a little bit about Israel-Palestine as a tech hub. Although, of course, for me, with my background focused on China, <laughs> I've always looked more at the, the kind of great firewall with China kind of creating its own spaces so that they could have their their companies be able to take off and now globally compete but uh, that's that's more of an aside i do find it interesting though because i mean i remember when i started finding out about some of the companies that were from israel like i had no clue like like roku i believe is from israel which like you know i had no idea like when i saw i was like oh this is the coolest thing uh and now they're all over we work we work really i didn't know that either WeWork uh, came out, and sorry, I totally interrupted, which I no, no. try not to do, but I got really excited. I yeah. know that one. I just listened to an in-depth podcast about the the rise and fall of WeWork. That's fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea. It's an Israeli founder, but I think it's an American-based uh, company. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Please keep no, going, Chris. <laughs> talk about Roku. No, 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 no. I've been telling you to talk about Roku. It's just one of those things of like, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating thing. And I think in so many ways, like it's not clearly presented, especially, you know, cause like, like Nokia famously finish, although now owned by Microsoft. Um, or if you look at like Samsung or, you know, Sony, like these are like, you know, they're very clear where these brands are from very often. Um, so, I mean, I guess it like, there's a kind of question that pops in my head, and maybe it's uh, too much of an aside, but given like the the backlash towards Israel over their assaults and occupation of Palestine, is there perhaps some sort of intentional uh, obscuring of the Israeli roots of some of these big tech companies, or is it just sort of one of those things of like we just sort of take tech for granted and assume it comes from like the U.S. or EU? 
I think it's more related to um, the fact that Israel doesn't produce so much of its own multinational corporations. They, they, Israel goes global through startups, uh, which means that the Silicon Valley-based companies buy Israeli startups, so it's exits. Uh, so that's why you have uh, Israeli a technology developed by Israeli startup inside Intel machines or inside the, the Google search algorithm, for example, is developed in Israel. So you have these sort of solutions that are now come to us, not straightforwardly through Israel. Uh, so that's why it becomes a bit invisible, I think. And how did you actually like learn about this initially? You mentioned that you'd had some interaction there, but how like how did you really get into this? Because I mean, it is so invisible. Like, what was your entry point? I think I was just visiting the, the Palestine and then saw these all these tech brands sort of towering uh, towards the sky. Tel Aviv, especially, is filled with it has you know all the brands you can imagine. And what has been interesting that it used to be based on the tail of the crater area, the whole tech ecosystem, but now it's spread towards uh, Nagab, which is the, or Israel is called Negev. It's south, south of Palestine, south of Israel there, the desert, uh, arid area, and in Jerusalem, which is the, you know, divided city, and more and more into the West Bank as well. So you have these, um, you have more and more Palestinians working as outsourced labor uh, through Israeli companies that are actually subsidiaries of uh, Silicon Valley companies. And you have more and more uh, startup companies in Palestine, uh, in West Bank and in East Jerusalem that are um, coming to, to the 48th area of, of Israel to, to get investments. So you see new kind of uh, bridges being built between the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Israel proper. And um, it's all under, un, under the table because it's very uh, um, sensitive thing for Palestinians to be engaging with uh, Israelis in this sort of a way. And there are politics involved. So this sort of uh, got my attention while just while traveling the place basically and in israel the tech ecosystem is so much based on um, military it's uh, and and the military relies on us aid of course uh, so the the military is sort of the um, the educational hub for israeli techies and uh, particularly the surveillance units which practice and develop new technologies by spying on Palestinians. Uh, so there's data extractivism for you. Um, uh, and then coming out of these military units, they often form startups. And these startups then, if they're successful, they become sold for US corporations uh, mainly. Um, and there was a lot of cases now in, with the recent clashes that um, the Silicon Valley social media companies were actively, it seemed that they were actually actively trying to uh, censor the Palestinian narrative out of internet, uh, out of public eye. And a lot of cases of, of accounts being erased and uh, um, photographs being erased. Um, so you have this sort of um, uh, political implications of this close collaboration between the Israeli state and the US state in the times of conflict uh, then. Because of course, Palestinians are using these same social networks and they've been tapped on this same data realm. And one has to think what is done to that data uh, when it's so heavily connected to the Israeli state. Uh, so that's, uh, that, that's one layer of the puzzle here. Uh, that is, uh, I think that's a huge huge aspect and I, I find it very interesting i guess it's like it's it's not surprising at all that like the military would be so strongly connected to, you know especially with the you know famous or infamous uh intelligence units and 
as well, like the the mandatory conscription. So plenty of people going in, whether you know, regardless. And I, I don't know. I like this is a bit of an aside, uh, but it's it, it actually to me when I hear this, like, it, like I think of all these parallels with China. Um, you know how similar, like you know, the PLA. You know, People's Liberation Army being very central to the early development of the tech industry in China, like the owner of Huawei was a like PLA, I believe, colonel. I mean, I could be wrong on that, but where the startup money for that particular business came from, there's there's very little knowledge. Uh, and similar with a lot of Chinese tech companies, not to mention, like, you know, if you look at uh, what's what's been going on in Xinjiang and the, the testing of facial recognition, and tracking and security. And I find it like extra interesting too, because of course, you know, in the West, like the the official lines being, oh, don't buy Huawei because, you know, the the Chinese military is going to spy on you. But, you know, having a similar sort of military connection for somebody who's like kind of our buddies, oh, that's totally fine if the Israeli military people can spy on us. So just a lot of a a lot of fascinating connection, of course, always the hypocrisy of of development politics. But I'm I'm kind of like there's so much that I'm curious about here. And I'm I'm like you mentioned, of course, the that kind of under the table uh connection on on the front of labor to briefly touch on the labor issue. Like so I mean are like Palestinians paid less? I mean is that like the kind of like a similar, you know, migrant worker type of dynamic, even though they're not migrants because it's their own homes. Yeah, the, now a lot of like thoughts spring springing in my mind because of what you just said. I just want to briefly say that, of course, like you know, the example of China, but we can also go back to the United States and see that you know, CIA and and Pentagon are the the one of the you know primary investors. They have venture capital arms nowadays, and the whole tech. There's this libertarian image that is the individual entrepreneur who's developing technologies, but we know that it's state investments. We know that it's military investments that's behind it. So there's this sort of um, structure that is hidden once again. And uh, yeah, when we talk of Israel, it, it, we can't talk about it in, separate, in separation from the United States. So it's a part of the same tech ecosystem, definitely. So it crushes this sort of idea that it's only in the authoritarian China where this... Uh, when the military and entrepreneurs are in bed. Um, about the labor, yeah, that's a big, big and fascinating topic. And uh, that also goes back to, you know, to the early Silicon Valley semiconductor industry. It used to be the, you know, indigenous and racialized women who were working on the sort of production line of these, of these uh, semiconductors and uh, breeding in the emissions and, you know, there was there were Native American reservoirs in Navajo territory, for example, where they didn't have to pay the minimum wage, so that they could you know exploit uh, that kind of labor. And in Palestine, yes, it's um, you know there's a one economy. The, the Palestine doesn't have West Bank or Gaza doesn't have an airport, not a harbor. They can only export basically through Israel. Of course, it's, you know, but it's really expensive to export through. They have to go through Israeli customs. So they're dependent. There's one economy and it's a contained economy. So Israel has a lot to say about the price levels and the, the value of the labor and the wage levels and so forth. And I've studied uh, both the uh, uh, outsourcing sector. So the sector where Palestinians within West Bank sit in front of computers in offices and code or do maintenance or quality assurance for uh, Israeli tech companies. So it's on distance work, outsourcing. And there it's one third, one fifth, the salary. Uh, It's comparable to India, Ukraine salary. These are according to my interviews. So I don't have the, you know, the full data from the corporations themselves. They wouldn't share this, but I have enough interviews to show that this is credible. The same thing happens when Palestinians get hired, for example, from East Jerusalem, where they can travel to West Jerusalem and work in these companies. It seems that they get half the pay. And this plays into the whole sort of speculative quality of innovation economy where some people are imagined to be more creative and more capable than others. And often there seems to be a racial element in it. 
So in Israel, it is the Jewish Askenazi group that is imagined as the most capable. And the Palestinians are on the bottom of the, of the hierarchy. And you can see it in the stories that, once again, in the metaphors, if in Silicon Valley, we had the cowboys and the uh, missionaries, these kinds of uh, white heroes, in Israel, you have the Zionist heroes that are, that are sort of the main characters in innovation literature. So you have the, they're called pioneers or um, they're called the farmers of high tech or the heroes, the heroes of, of, of Zionism, basically. And that creates a sort of imaginary of who is perceived as capable and who is not. These metaphors shape our understanding of uh, who is creative, who is capable. And the Palestinians there are considered in a very colonial way often as these uh, people who are not mature, people who need to be trained, people who need to be uh, sort of uh, taught how to be innovative. And there's a whole history of Palestine that goes of the, one of the earliest cities and all the technology. You know, you, you sort of create this illusion that, that modernity has just arrived to Palestine and it's with Israel who's delivering. <laughs> so I think these stories affect the wage levels as well. In extremely simplistic terms, um, why can't people just be cool to other people? Like why? <laughs> oh, it's all so maddening, these um, these histories and narratives and assumptions that are painting with such a broad brush and are just so unfair. And I mean, once again, using very simplistic language, just gross. I mean, that's so gross. <sighs> I don't have anything brilliant even to follow up on except a, an underlying feeling of just sadness <laughs> at, you know, why why do we do this over and over and over in so many different iterations and incarnations? And, you know, it's when we break it down on this, you know, intellectual level, it feels like this should be something that could be cleaned up. You know, like, why can't we clean this up? <laughs> you know, like, why can't we be decent to our fellow humans? let alone be decent to nature. And in practice, it's just so many layers. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's, um, it's a tra tragic story, definitely. And, and it plays into like the truth of the matter is that we, that the global system of innovation needs cheap bodies. It needs cheap nature it needs cheap labor and it's with these stories that they become reproduced and normalized and naturalized and especially in, in innovation economy where you have this myth of diversity i don't know if you remember there's uh, richard florida the guy who came up with the term creative class and creative city he had this theory that more the, the, the more there are different kind of people innovating together the more successful the company can become and he used uh, sexual orientation as a as a sort of uh, indicator and it's true that in san francisco for example you have more uh, uh non-hetero communities that are taking part in technology development and you could say that there's a point in it but he forgot i think he forgot race and i think he forgot gen gender and uh suddenly he noticed that oops these are white people <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and there's a whole communities that are not part in this sort of diverse creative economy. And I think it's a nice bedtime story for, uh, for the startup sector to think that they are on the forefront of diversity, where in fact, uh, when it comes to gender, for example, Silicon Valley is, is behind the national average in, in, in the US. So, but still this myth keeps on, you know, reproducing that diversity brings success. Uh, it seems that the success is also brought by creating cheap bodies and cheap labor, uh, more so. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, looking at, or, or perhaps if there is diversity, looking at where that diversity is, um, you know, what, what levels of the company? Uh, 
you know, I think of, um, and as well, even with this, when we look at the, you know, diversity of, of race or culture, um, or, or I guess in this case, really the false diversity, you know, it leads to so, or it feels like, and this is something, you know, that, that Sophia and I have, have argued and some stuff we're working on that, you know, there is this sort of um, homogenizing effect through these big companies. Like there's a, a marginalization that happens because, you know, some like engineer on in Silicon Valley might not think of the different cultural usages or the different languages or something like that of how it could be used in a different place. Um, so it's really like kind of creating a, you know, theoretically these technological devices are creating their own world where anything can happen but in reality it's creating a box around something that pretends is infinite yeah so it's i mean also i mean i like uh, i know this would be a decide too i'm you know i even think of when you're talking about the kind of hierarchy in israel thinking of like the 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 plight as well of the like ethiopian jews uh, and such, and like you know, how they like you know, are they included in this tech boom or uh, shoved aside as well? Yeah, exactly. It's it's not just the uh, Palestinians, and and to be fair, and it's important to mention that of course there are Palestinians who benefit from this. There are Palestinian elites who try to integrate the Palestinian economy more and more into this Israeli tech economy and get something from between. But yeah, it's the, the whole sort of uh, classical ethnic uh, division of labor that was formed with the, you know, Zionist expansion. It's not just between the Jews and the Arabs. It's within different kind of Jewish communities as well. Uh, so you have the Ashkenazi. And then especially you have the, uh, the ultra-Orthodox communities that are very looked down upon, not to mention the Ethiopian and uh, Yemeni and the, the the Arab Jewish community, so to speak. So these hierarchies are are there in tech as well. And you know, I'm really glad that you you brought this up in terms of the elites within the Palestinian community who are benefiting, because that was something I wanted to ask about as well. Because you mentioned that they're kind of like you know subcontractors or something like that. How are these subcontractors operating? I mean, are they pushing Palestinian like other Palestinian businesses out of the way are they kind of doing in palestine uh i guess that kind of uh, if gentrification or, or or eliminating space for other businesses yeah it's a very complicated reality there you have some palestinian capitalists who are trying to uh use tech sector as a way of escaping from Israel as a way of creating linkages to Gulf countries, Jordan, Europe, whatever. And then you have the sort of uh, the biggest players there who are working together with Israel on, on, on this sector. And sometimes they also might have, they, they disagree with a lot of Israeli policies and they are not, they are sort of saying that they are realistic uh, by doing it, so it's very complicated, um, uh, complex reality. Um, but what you what what you can see is that they do benefit from the from the occupation because then um, the it whole the outsourcing system operates through Israel military uh, basically. So so you, they have connections to Israel military. They have specific. Uh, um, uh, privileges they can move freely while other Palestinians can't you know cross the boundaries whenever their borders whenever they want to these guys can they they can just drive, drive through and they get to monopolize the outsourcing structure in a way that they control the labor and its uh, price levels to, to a great deal so yeah but but basically the role of the Palestinian capitalists it's uh, it's complex and um, but I would say that the majority of them are on some level, collaborating uh, with Israel and, and and benefiting from it. So, Anti, like, oh, thank you so much for this. It's been really fascinating. And I mean, this is the type of thing, like, truly, especially how much all of our you know work overlaps. Like, 
we could go on for ages and ages. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure we will outside of this uh, and perhaps, you know, on here again in the future, or I hope so. Uh, but uh, since we're running out of time a bit, at the end of every episode, we like to ask all of our guests a question. 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 A question for the ages. So the question is for our listeners at home. They hear this. They're they're learning stuff. They're fascinated. They want to do something. Um, it could be, you know, something in their daily lives. It could be learning more. What can you recommend for them uh, to make a difference? No pressure with this answer. Gosh, um, I think the first thing that helps if we think about, you know, it's a different story if you are now in Palestine, for example, and you are trying to get your story out, uh, then you do different kind of things. But um, for, for a person who's not, who doesn't know yet that he's struggling or she's struggling with the, uh, against these tech giants and this culture of innovation, I think the first thing to do is to to rehearse critique i think what we've been doing right now is that when you take something that is idealized and it's and it's uh, sort of has this aura of newness and coolness and you start to break it then you start to take steps into an, another direction then you you know you, you you step back and you look at it in a different light and that moment in itself is a window into creating something that is alternative, you know? So I think there are like these technologies that we have, these are fantastic and we can do different kinds of stuff, stuff with them. So the first step, the critique, <laughs> and that creates space into something that I can't even imagine. So that, that, that's, that's the sort of first thing. And I think if you are working in tech, then, uh, you know, there's a, horrendous like anti-union attitude that is that is uh, part of this scene so you can start to organize you can start to see that these means of production are traveling through you you have power you are not just a worker you are the very artist who is uh, who is making these machines work so use that power form groups uh, come together uh, we are so especially in tech because of this uh, ideal of the individual hero, we become so autonomous uh, beings or um, we imagine us as individuals who don't have any power, but actually I think people in tech, they do have power, they can organize. And then as a citizen, when tech comes to town, that's another opportunity to organize. And I think we can, we use this uh, social media, we, we, we use these things to communicate and we can, there are politics within them. We can tell other stories within these technologies. So they are not absolute conquerors. We can act within them as well. So I think those, those things come to mind right now. I think that's a pretty great answer to the question and definitely will give our listeners um, some points of entry if they, you know, want to, you know, think critically about how they can engage with these, as you said, tech giants. Before we say goodbye and thank you for this wonderful, wonderful conversation, is there anything you would like us to link down in the show notes so our visitors can either find you or read more about your work or uh, hear more about these topics that you're working on? Um. One, one, one resource that came to mind that is not by me, but it's uh, really useful if someone's interested in the, in, in, in the California uh, scene and what's happening there is a project called Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. That is a collab collaborative research project that looks at the urban effects of the tech sector and the practice of dispossession that they have on the urban realm. So that's really useful. And... Um, yeah, if, if um, you, you can share my, uh, maybe my Helsinki University, the research portal. So if someone has any ideas or comments or wants to, you know, shout at me, uh, my uh, contact details are there. 
and my work. Wonderful. Fantastic. So you heard it here first, listeners. We will link both to uh, the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project and Antti's academic profile in the show notes. Well, I feel like it's always so um, anticlimactic at the end, like, goodbye. Um, But really, truly, from the bottom of our hearts, we're so glad that you were able to come and join us today and have this, like, just really deep conversation. We went a lot of places and I think that we maybe started to pull a few of those threads on what we earlier called the tangled web. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, uh, Chris and Sophie. Thanks for having me. I think, yeah, we could have gone on forever because there's so many things to talk about, but I hope we can continue at some point. And uh, this was super, you know, nice and interesting for me too. So see you soon again. Definitely. A huge thank you to Antti Tarvainen for coming on and sharing these fascinating perspectives on the tech industry. Please join us next month when we will be talking with Anna Mariana Hikinen about climate change, water governance, and water conflicts in the Peruvian Andean region. From the shortening days and cold November rain of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophie Hagalani-Albov, Thank you for listening, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time.